The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I am Eric Deutsch. And I am really stoked to welcome Heidi Bennett of the podcast Vibrant Visionaries, Spinal Tap Minute, and my former co-host of Cabin Minute Cast. What, what? (laughs) 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 Oakland is in the house. Oh, Oaktown. (laughs) West Coast. (laughs) Oh, I'm outnumbered, huh, on this one? (laughs) Oh, shit. Well, welcome, Heidi. Welcome to prison. Thanks for inviting me to your cozy place. I see the fires are all on. The, there's plenty of warmth to be had. Yep. We like to set a mood here. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to Minute 61. And Minute 61 begins with a wounded snake and President attempting to escape, but their attempts are thwarted by the Duke's men. And I'd say they're thwarted by a, almost like a music video with those guys when they jump in. Like, it's a bit of a shock the monkey situation. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an intense scream, huh? Totally. Yeah. And then it- <laughs> Watch that monkey get hurt. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Yeah. Beige menace just, just goes at it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of huffing and puffing, too, along the side of that train, which doesn't really lend itself to stealth very well. But, uh, you know, dude just got shot in the leg and he hasn't even pulled out the the arrow yet. Yeah, and the whole headband gang and uh, ma- <laughs> miscellaneous glasses dudes are all in effect <laughs> here. <laughs> See, I never really understood the headbands. Like, even during the 80s, like, as a kid, I was, you know, just didn't understand why, you know, like, I didn't understand the aesthetic. Yeah, I still don't know, but I it, it's fun to, if you're it's a fun quick way to dress up and evoke the 80s real quick cuz just put a headband on. <laughs> yeah, I think headgear in general was really a thing. Like even with the aerobics, you know, wearing like some sort of a headband. And I just think of Karate Kid. Right. With you know, cuz that was such a, a pivotal moment in that too. But yeah, it's interesting that this really dates itself with the headbands. Yeah, Rambo wore a headband too at some point. Oh, he did. Yeah. That is kind of like the guy in here too. He's got the the red head, headband. Yeah, and I really um so I got to do um, you know, the thing minute with Harper. You guys had Harper on already, didn't you? We did, yeah. Yeah, and and so when I was on the thing minute, they were using this ambient lighting to great effect the blue lights that are actually used for um at airports to guide the planes in and so it's interesting to to hop into this minute and see something that's i mean the lighting looks very even across this train Mm -hmm. but it does look it does look like they've used the um the oil can, you know, the classic dystopian future oil can <laughs> motif 
to sort of justify how much lighting is here. And, and it's, you know, beautifully um, used um, in the next minute to, to show off some cool um, shadows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really like the colors that we have on the side of this train, this kind of mauve, dark pink-ish. And that kind of brings me to the next question, and this is kind of directed at Eric as well. Uh, There's not a whole lot of graffiti on these trains, and that kind of surprises me, especially considering from the World Trade Center how trashed that was and how much graffiti there was inside of there. And to see these train cars, I mean, virtually bereft of any kind of artwork is kind of surprising to me yeah especially because when this movie was made the new york city subway cars were covered in graffiti i mean that you know 70s the 80s there was no subway car that the outside wasn't just completely covered and it wasn't really until the 90s that they cleaned that up so obviously these are not new york city subway cars that they're using in the scene but yeah, uh, we've seen the graffiti in the World Trade Center. We saw like graffiti outside the chock full of nuts. So it's certainly a graffiti town. It was a graffiti town in real life also. I guess the this one just uh, slipped under the cracks. Or I don't know, maybe they rented these cars for the movie and the person that rented them said, no graffiti. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder in the context of, of this world, if you know the Duke just doesn't allow that to happen on these train cars. They just made me wonder about cutting up gang territory and to what degree are these cars occupied normally or is this fall under just, I mean, I presume it falls under the Duke's territory because he's there, but you've got a lot of space here where people can live essentially, you know, and something that could potentially be mobile. So I find it interesting that it is untouched to a great degree. Yeah, maybe yeah, the Duke just does not allow anything to sully his environment. He's, he's, he, he might be a lot of things with Duke, but he does not tolerate graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking it was more of an aesthetic choice for section of the film, too. With Like you said, that beautiful pink and um, uh, the contrast of the dark on one side with just the little lights flickering through it, and then the you know the all the varied colors on the left side depending on which angle we're looking at the camera is going back and forth from shooting from in front and behind the action kind of mm-hmm. so i had a question here what what you guys thought about this but you know we're 20 some odd seconds into this and snake is you know trying to escape with the president and then there's a dude wearing a lot of beige who kind of hops out of nowhere and like tackles him and tackles him to the ground. And I found that to be kind of an interesting, I guess, disabling move instead of just like hitting him over the head or something, but like to hurdle your body <laughs> against somebody <laughs> to stop them. I was just like, that just seems kind of excessive and maybe not the most efficient use of. And I granted, like, this isn't a karate kid flick. So, you know, I, I don't know how much these guys are boning up on their their skills, their attack skills, but I just, I mean, it makes for a great movie, but I thought it was kind of an interesting move and was curious what you guys thought. <laughs> I, I think that in living in Manhattan prison is really boring, and I think it's more fun doing it this way. <laughs> <laughs> the, the attack cat style? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I could see them being inside and like quickly figuring, for, trying to formulate a plan, and then him just going, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to jump out there on him. Element <laughs> of surprise! <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, I don't know, maybe is is that the guy that does the scream? Like, is he doing like a, so just, ah, screaming as he jumps? <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, um, truly the music like turns into a kind of, a, it's, it's it's like a more of like a song in composition at this moment. I mean, there's no lyrics to it, but it like it's it stands out a bit more, and it does kind of sound like he's leaping out and like starting a music video here. And <laughs> it does sound um, a bit like it, it's evocative of Shock the Monkey, which came out just the next year. Or so it must have been like something brewing that sort of soundscape mm. and another song i'm thinking of is the opening noises mick jagger makes in sympathy for the devil <laughs> yeah oh, yeah yeah also fair yeah they recycled the music here and yeah how do you guys feel about them using this track again for this fight uh, i mean I, I think it's fine i mean it, it's it's not the first mo- movie to use the same song in more than one scene you know i, I mean i it's, it's fine with me yeah i didn't even really notice because I didn't, I mean, I watched this movie from beginning to end at two different sittings in preparation for hanging out with y'all tonight, but I didn't, it wasn't like I was zeroed in on the whole music thing. So it worked for me. Hmm. Molly, did you ask because you don't like it? Yeah. (laughs) I was curious. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, Yeah, I just, I thought it was, and I don't take issue that it was used a few times. I think that it just doesn't match for a fight scene for me because it's a little jazzy and upbeat and it feels more like somebody sneaking around and doing something than a fight scene so i think part of that is maybe my association from a previous scene as well Mm. because i felt like that really matched the tonality the emotional tone of it and this doesn't seem that to me but i get low budget you know it's cool but yeah it just it didn't quite merge really well for me gotcha I thought it was fun. It's a fun tune, yeah. Some other sounds that we hear in this minute are some stereotypical classic punching sounds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As Snake starts to take this entire gang out uh, by himself, uh, it looks like in the very beginning of the fight, there's very rapid fire four of that smack punch sound. Thug, the thug hits Snake. Snake then blocks his next punch. Then Snake punches the thug, and then Snake turns around and punches another thug. And all four of the noises are the exact same sound effect. Yeah, it also made me think of Harper since he's now working doing fully for the new Creep Show show coming up. Um, and I was thinking about that fully in this is especially egregious. <laughs> like it's really like, <laughs> it sounds like it's really piped in from a different location, you know. Yeah, it definitely stands out. And as far as Snake going uh, with his fighting, so he does start out well, and then it just he's overwhelmed by sheer numbers. But uh, at the time that they were promoting the movie, Kurt Russell described Snake as a mercenary with a style of fighting that's a combination of Bruce Lee, the Exterminator and Darth Vader. (laughs) Now. (laughs) <laughs> I see Bruce Lee in this scene because he's doing some sort of like at one point he does kind of like a karate chop kind of thing. I never saw the Exterminator, so I can't really speak to that. But Darth Vader, <laughs> I, mean, I I think he was just throwing in the name of like the coolest villain in pop culture at the time. I, I don't know any point in this movie where Snake is fighting like Darth Vader. 
Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, not that I can recall specifically. I don't really recall Darth Vader breaking out any type of like roundhouse moves (laughs) (laughs) in Star Wars. Isn't it mostly like psychic abilities? Yeah, it's lightsaber dueling and then just, you know, waving his hand to, you know, with telekinesis. He's the choke dude. Yeah. He's the choke dude. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's some telekinesis stuff that Snake (laughs) has that's on the cutting room floor somewhere. I do find it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to talk about there's a guy who's kind of just before the the beige menace pops out. (laughs) There's like a, a dude who's just standing there like right around that 24 to 25 second mark he's just standing there he doesn't pop out of anywhere yeah and he's just standing there watching the fight too by the way he is not (laughs) at all helping out his friends he's literally about seven feet away watching this entire thing so my other research i did today was i watched a little bit of guardians of the galaxy volume two nice yeah and part of the reason was As I was watching this um, movie last night, I realized that now I'll I'll just jump in and say real quick that I only remember ever watching this once before. So it's not like in my DNA, like some of the other movies from the 80s. So I, um, when I was watching it and looking at the, some of the colors that they use, the real vivid neons and such, all of a sudden I kind of clicked into, oh yeah, and Guardians of the Galaxy, and then especially in Guardians 2, Volume 2, they really do use some of these real vivid pinks and reds and greens that are so um, a part of you know, the more modern looking part or the more space age looking parts Mm. of this movie. Mm -hmm. And then the other, you know, and obviously there's a connection here because he's in both of these films, but also um, that um, that movie starts out with a flashback of um, Kurt Russell's character from that movie in 19... 80 i think or it's 81 or 80 so it's right around this time you know on earth and they've smoothed him out to make him look (laughs) (laughs) uh this age so it was just a funny little connection i know this movie takes place you know later on but later when is it supposed to take place in the 90s yeah 97 97 but you know literally uh it's coming out in 81 and and that's around when uh, Kurt Russell's other character, you know, is on Earth uh, making a making baby Peter. So it's just, I don't know, it's just an interesting little thing <laughs> to connect those dots and the colors. Because I remember when I saw that film in the theater, how love, how in love with all the 80s evocative colors there were, but I didn't specifically connect them to this film. So it's fun. Mm, to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with that technology, it's so strange. You know, and there's uh, a movie coming out with um, Will Smith, you know, where they you know do some of that technology. So it's very strange to, you know, see somebody who's got such a career like Kurt Russell and to be able to, you know, within the same, you know, day, see such a, a wide, you know, range of time, even though these are both technically taking place at the, you know, Mm, you know, there's some chronological overlap between those two movies and to see what he actually looked like at the time that this other movie is portraying him, you know, through technology is, is quite, it's quite unique and very interesting. 
faux show. This hair looks fab in every one of them. So <laughs> whatever the age, <laughs> the shaggy beauty holds true. It's true. Yeah, he's got good hair. So we were talking about Snake and his fighting abilities. And you know who's not a good fighter is the president. Because, boy, he puts absolutely no resistance up whatsoever and just kind of flops around like a rag doll when they grab him. <laughs> His part isn't very juicy in this movie. I, watching this, I was like, oh, you know, there's only a few key characters that really have much to do. He just seems along for the ride most of the time. Yeah, he and his briefcase and the cassette are the MacGuffin of the movie. Yeah, it's amazing how useless he is. And I mean, he's, <laughs> he's getting, he's getting yeah, like a sleep a sleepy hug during this. Because <laughs> it's like almost like a sleeper hold around his neck, you know, with a, when the guy grabs him. But it's like a hug because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't pass out. He's just kind of like, hmm, I'll just be here being hugged by this guy from behind. (laughs) (laughs) It it fits with what John Carpenter was trying to portray. He was, you know, it it was a very anti-authoritarian stance he was taking. So it would make sense that here, instead of trying to help Snake or get away, he would just stand there and allow himself to be recaptured again. Oh, God. So then we cut away from the fight after Snake is subdued and Maggie and Brain come out of the train and the Duke follows out after them. And I really like this shot where the three of them are standing there and their three shadows are cast on the train to their left. It is a, is a, just a very cool looking shot the way their shadows are. Totally agree. Yeah, it is. Cool. Oh, it's amazing. You know, I I noticed that too this time, and there was a part of me that just was like, oh, I wish I would have seen this earlier because I might have tried to make our logo out of it because I just thought it was ah. so cool. Well, maybe you can do a limited edition uh, sticker or T-shirt or something out of that. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great shot. You get a little bit of the fire too. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say especially because you can also include it in the Duke's shadow. Of course, his awesome hat is is part of the shadow as well. Yeah, and you know, just before we get to them, when there's some um, some of the guys running, and you're seeing them, their shadow against the train, mm-hmm. it makes me think of like a George or a George A. Romero zombie situation. I mean, they're not the, whether they be humans or zombies or whatever, just that kind of shot where like people are running for their lives. It mm. just gives, just reminds me of that a bit. That's not what's happening per se, but it just, I don't know, just made me think of that when I saw them running in the, you know, the shadow on the train. And so here in the movie, Maggie and brain are already with the Duke. They come out right of the, out of the train right ahead of him, but it's, it's a bit different in both the draft script and in the shooting script. In the draft script, when Snake is uh, trying to get the president untied, he actually screams out for Brain to help him. He says, Harold, Brain, give me a hand. But then the thugs enter the train and subdue him. So this fight actually takes place inside the train. Mm. They grab his gun, they hold it to his head, and, and Duke, you know, tells him to stop. In the shooting script, Snake does leave the train with the president. They see Brain and Maggie outside, and Brain actually waves to them. So Snake and the president start walking towards him, then the guy jumps out of the train on him and they grab his gun and hold it to his head and, and Duke says, hold it. So here there's, they don't grab his gun and hold it to his head. And here Maggie and brain already have linked up with the Duke. Hmm. You know, I think that those were all very reasonable scenarios for this. Um, 
And it's so interesting to hear about, you know, different intentions that Carpenter had prior to this actually, you know, making it into a final cut. But I kind of like this because it has this, and again, we're breaking this down minute by minute, but at the end of this minute, you're like, oh man, brain totally narked on you. He totally screwed you. I, I mean, it sure looks that way. Yeah. Yeah. So you have that really, mm, you're like, oh, you know, we, we kind of thought you might do it. And here we go. You already did, you know? And so I like that. I like that punch at the end of this minute. Yep. Works for me. So I have a question for you, Heidi. I'd like to ask the guests to something that might tie their other podcast into this show. Molly, I guess you could jump in too since you were the co-host on this one. And I'm asking this question mostly because I just want an excuse to say the name Lord Fornicus. (laughs) (laughs) But what do you think would happen if Lord Fornicus showed up in Manhattan prison? (laughs) Oh my god, what a wonderful, scary, creepy character he was. Um, That's a good question. I mean... I think that he and the, um, so, okay, so who are our main bad guys here in this film right now? I'm kind of drawing a blank. It's the Duke. The Duke's the main bad guy. And then what's his, his sidekick? Romero. So Romero, George A. Romero (laughs) Jr., (laughs) he, I think he and Fornicus would get along swimmingly because <laughs> he seems like a real deviant, wonderful weirdo. <laughs> so uh, Duke might be um, out, out weirdo-fied, you know, he might, <laughs> he might be pulling the strings from behind. Um, definitely setting up a different performance situation inside the theater than what we saw in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Molly? Hmm. Uh, I don't really see Lord Fornicus as a leader, you know, so I don't really see him as somebody who would be, you know, having his own dukedom. But I think that he would carve out his own little corner of the world in here and and perhaps that uh, kind of like Deadwood, you know, he would be, you know, the woo to the Duke in that if the Duke had people that he wanted to dispose of, he could give them to Fornicus and Fornicus would be only happy to oblige in his, uh, his happy torture porn palace. So I could see that being the case. So he's the woo. I love it. Very creative. (laughs) Uh, Heidi, can you let everybody know where they can find you out in the interwebs? Sure. I like to spend time in the interwebs. (laughs) <laughs> um, over at vibrantvisionaries.com and uh, at Vibrant Visionaries, you will find my podcast, Vibrant Visionaries, where I talk with multi creative professionals, people I refer to as Vibrant Visionaries. So, folks that are filmmakers and writers and cartoonists and artists, like the artist Skinner, if you're familiar with him, I've got a really fun conversation with him and um, even the uh, s- some awesome people that I interviewed at Fantastic Fest last year. So if you like just casual conversations with interesting creative people who do a lot of different creative things, then check it out at vibrantvisionaries.com. All right. Awesome. Heidi will be with us all week long. And so until tomorrow, make sure you come chat with us about this minute on Facebook in Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. 
Chat with us about it on Twitter at NYMinutePod. Rate and review us and subscribe if you haven't already. And so until tomorrow, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the ball. Mm-hmm.